It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Birds are incredibly intelligent creatures. Research shows some birds rival primates and even humans in their remarkable forms of comprehension. In her book, The Genius of Birds, Jennifer Ackerman writes about birds' brains and what they're capable of. Birds can think logically and reason on par with young children. They can solve complex problems they've never seen before. They can make and use their own tools. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Scientists used to think bird brains were too small and primitive for even the simplest of processes. After all, their brains are small enough to fit inside a nut. So how is it that birds can understand things like cause and effect, and even communicate in ways that resemble language? Jennifer Ackerman says we're just at the beginning of learning about birds' cognitive skills, and what we discover may help us better understand ourselves. She joins animal psychologist Alexander Taylor on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Flora Lichtman moderates the conversation. She's a science journalist and host of the Gimlet Media podcast, Every Little Thing. Here's Lichtman. Jennifer, I want to start with you. When people use the term bird brain, it's not typically a compliment. So has our perspective on bird cleverness, is it shifting right now? Yes. So the um, misperception of birds as stupid really is rooted (laughs) in a misunderstanding of the nature and anatomy of the bird brain. So we used to think that bird brains were so small and primitive that they were really capable of only the simplest mental processes, um, and most of them instinctive. Birds were basically thought of as as pecking automatons. Well, now we know that that is not true. Um, Birds can think logically and reason on par with young children. They can solve complex problems they've never seen before. They can make and use their own tools. They can count. (laughs) They can um, understand basic principles of physics, like cause and effect. They can communicate in ways that resemble language. And they can um, pass along uh, uh, cultural traditions, whether it's modes of song or styles of toolmaking. And birds do all of this with a brain um, so small it could fit inside a nut. So the question is, how is this possible? Well, we've known for a long time that um, the brain size is not the sole or even the main measure of intelligence or the main indicator of intelligence. Um, And the truth is that birds have large brains for their body size. Many birds do. It's uh, just as we do. We have large brains for our body size. It's called relative brain size. And moreover, uh, what really matters in the intelligent brain is the density of neurons. And very recently, um, a Brazilian neuroscientist named Susana Eculano Uzel counted the number of neurons in the brains of songbirds and parrots. And what she discovered was a real surprise. Bird brains have um, twice as many neurons as similar-sized primate brains and four times as many neurons as similar-sized mammal brains. 
Now, those neurons are organized in a different way in a bird brain. That's one new piece of understanding. Our, our brains are, um, or our neurons are organized into layers, like our cortical layers, like, like the layers of a lasagna. And uh, bird, uh, the neurons in bird brains are organized into clusters, like the bulbs, um, bulbs of garlic cloves. But the, um, the bottom line is that uh, what we've come to understand is this. In the human forebrain, 75% of our cortex is devoted to complex cognition. Now, that's things like um, working memory, planning, reasoning, thinking. And now we know that 75% of the bird brain far from being primitive, is actually um, capable of this kind. It's a cortex-like material that's capable of this kind of complex cognition. So birds, in fact, have cognitive skills that are in many ways comparable to our primate relatives and less so to their reptilian ones. Alex, you study, like, I, I feel like they're like the brainiacs of the bird world. They're often trotted out as the really smart birds. Absolutely. Intr- introduce us to the, to the New Caledonian crows. So the New Caledonian crows are a bit of an oddity. So this, um, until recently, they were the only uh, species of crow that we knew that both used and made tools. We've just discovered in the last couple of years that the Hawaiian crow uh, also does as well. Um, and this is just really rare. Like, we don't see any other species of crow doing it. In general, both tool use and tool manufacture are pretty rare across the animal kingdom. Um, and it's not just that the crows use and make tools. When um, one of my colleagues, Gavin Hunt, kind of start, first started really paying attention to these crows back in the early 1990s, he kept on seeing them fly around New Caledonia. It, they weren't just holding sticks. They were holding what looked, looked like sticks with little hooks on their end. On, on their end. And the thing that is really surprising about that is that hooks are kind of a, a human invention. They might seem quite simple uh, to our modern minds, but not even chimpanzees uh, have invented hooks. And when you look at the archaeological record, you see that hooks only turn up around 100,000 years ago. And yet, for some reason, here we have uh, this, this kind of small crow on like, a couple of islands in the Pacific carving wooden hooks. Um, are they uh, carved? Or are they bent? What? what they do is, so if you imagine... Um, like a junction between two branches. So the crows will chop off um, one end of the branch here, and then they will carve that junction. They'll, they'll take away bark, they'll take away a bit of the, the wood, and they'll turn the, ju- the, the junction into a functioning hook. So it really is imp- what we term uh, imposing three-dimensional form onto a natural material. So this is what we term as ho- uh, tool crafting. And the only other species that show any type of tool crafting uh, are ourselves, orangutans, and chimpanzees. But it's only the New Caledonian crows that have go so far as to make hooks. What um, are they fishing for? Uh, there's, yeah, great question. So there's, um, there's these grubs, they're called vertebrancool in um, New Caledonia. They're about the size of your, your finger. Uh, not particularly tasty if you eat them yourself, but um, the crows absolutely love them. And what they're doing is making little uh, holes in big rotten logs, and then they're, they're essentially fishing for these, these grubs. They're trying to hook the side uh, of their body with their, with their hook and, and get the food out. Have you seen New Caledonian crows use tools? Um, well, I have in Alex's um, aviary set up, but one thing to mention about those grubs, I think, is that they're a super, super rich mm. food source, so they're really worth inventing a tool for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're super, yeah, they're super high in protein. Right. So what are you looking at in your aviary? What are, you, what are you testing for? So we've been really focused on trying to understand how the crows think, and in particular if they have any kind of specialized intelligence because of these you know, really rare tool-making abilities. So 
Um, one of the kind of leading hypotheses for how we got smart is termed the technical intelligence hypothesis. And it really is that our tools in some way made us smart. And we think that maybe it helped with uh, inhibitory control, with planning and these kind of things. But it's really hard to test that. We don't have a time machine to go back and kind of replay evolution and figure out the story of how our minds evolved. This is like a chicken and egg thing. Yeah, ex- a little bit, right? Exactly. Like, are we smart because are we smart and therefore made tools, or did we make tools and therefore became smart? Right, absolutely. Because we could have become smart because of like our, our social environment instead, and then done the tool use. So the crows are an amazing model species to test this with because we can go and we know they're not particularly social, but they are, you know, really amazing tool users. So. Um, what we're trying to do is really understand their minds, understand how they think, and then we could compare their minds to those of other birds, and we can try and see if there are differences there. But it, it's a really hard job because actually understanding how any animal thinks is, is one that is, um, is tricky, to say the least. It's taken a long time already. Yes. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's episode features Jennifer Ackerman, who's been writing about science and nature for three decades. The Genius of Birds is her seventh book. Alexander Taylor is a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, where he leads the New Caledonian Crow Lab. Flora Lichtman is a producer for Public Radio's Science Friday. Their conversation was held last June. Just ahead, Taylor introduces a short video that shows an experiment with crows. To watch the three-minute video, find the link in our show notes and on our website, aspenideas.org. Here's Lichtman. So we have a video so you can get a taste of, of the new Caledonian crow. What should people know before they watch it? Um, so what you're seeing is kind of a, a longer problem-solving sequence um, than uh, we had set up in the past. So early on in my career, I was really interested in whether crows could use tools to get another tool, which we term meta-tool use. And the reason I was so interested in this is because... Uh, all of human technology was started from one jump, and this was metatool use. Uh, as early humans, we started hitting uh, rocks into other rocks, uh, and this allowed us to break those rocks and make cutting edges. And that one jump from taking a, a tool and using it to crack a nut, like chimpanzees do, and instead taking that tool and using it to crack, essentially, another tool to make a cutting edge, led to all of our stone tools, and then from then onwards to all of our other technology. So we wanted to know, well, did the crows have the flexibility to use one tool on another tool? And so we gave some very simple problems where they had to use one stick to get a longer stick to get food, and we found that they were able to do it. And so what you're about to see is us kind of taking this problem and, and kind of blowing it up a little bit, seeing how far they could go with this, uh, with this meta tool use. All right, can I stay in here? Absolutely, you can sit and watch. Right. We'll see what happens. Come on then, send in your mastermind because it's going to need that. Alex studies wild birds, which he releases after three months of research. This one is nicknamed 007, and it's about to attempt what Alex believes is one of the most complex tests of the animal mind ever constructed. The bird is familiar with the individual objects. But this is the first time he's seen them arranged like this. Eight separate stages that must be completed in a specific order if the puzzle is to be solved. And if the bird succeeds, it'll be a world first. He takes time to have a look and then starts with the short stick. Stage one, 
he finds it's too short to reach the food. He then sets off to get the first stone. But he drops it. Another. He seems to be stuck. But then something seems to click. He deploys the first stone. And then another. Final stage. Success. Eight individual stages of one complex puzzle completed. I think. I think it's totally mind-boggling. Jennifer, have you, did you, have you seen this video before? Yes, yeah, so it's actually this video that turned me on to this whole topic and that <laughs> sent me to Alex Taylor and his lab. I just couldn't believe that this bird could uh, use one tool to get another tool to get another tool to get another tool, which is what Alex describes as meta-tool use. That's only been seen in humans and great apes before. And this bird, you know, this bird that lives on this island and nowhere else on the planet. Um, and so I, um, I just de- decided this is, this is just such fascinating um, and puzzling behavior, um, and I, I need to pursue it. So, I feel puzzled, too. This may be a naive question, but how do we know that the bird is pulling out those stones because they understand the bird understands how a seesaw works and then understands how do we know that is what is driving those behaviors well i mean i think we don't so i mean i think you know when i watch the clip i'm I'm always really impressed like 007 was a complete superstar but it still kind of annoys me to a degree that there's a bit of a mystery there about exactly how he was thinking when he solved this problem so there's like a range of hypotheses for like what could be going through uh, his mind from you know having planned out all eight um, steps and kind of understanding everything about the problem to kind of like doing it more on a moment-to-moment basis and this has actually been a, a focus of our research for a few years now is trying to really understand well can these crows plan one or two or three chess moves ahead or they really have this uh, the capacity that you know this amazing behavior that we saw from from him kind of suggests are there other examples of bird behavior that help us get into the minds of birds jennifer uh, yeah, there are lots of examples. I mean, one that comes to mind is, um, is birdsong, which we're all so beautifully subject to. Um, so birdsong is, um, birds learn their songs the way that humans learn language. 
And in fact, Charles Darwin called birdsong the nearest analogy to human language. And, and he was really right about that. The, the similarities are just astonishing. Um, birds learn their songs by listening to a tutor or a model. Um, then they imitate that tutor or model, and then they practice, practice, practice. Does that mean you can hear them messing up? Absolutely. Um, b- b- baby birds make a mess of it. They have, <laughs> they have what's called subsong, which is equivalent to our baby babble, and they're just shooting out random sounds you know, to hear their own voices. And they begin to put the pieces together, um, and it's... Um, it's really an astonishing process, and it's called vocal learning, um, and it's very rare in the animal world, but it's a really great analogy to, to learning human language. And once those birds have learned their songs, they're incredibly precise about singing them because it's actually the female um, they're trying to please, or in some cases they're trying to establish territory. They want their song to sound good. And so that first stage of the process when they're listening, they're really forming in their minds a mental model of a great song. And I sort of think about like a a beginning guitarist listening to a a Rolling Stones version of Satisfaction, and he holds that in his mind while he makes terrible noises on his guitar trying to figure out how to play it. But but that is what these birds are doing. They're holding a mental model of the song that they've learned from, from an adult tutor and that is what they're shooting for. Um, and I'm really excited. Um, today, Alex actually just published a paper that suggests that New Caledonian crows actually use a very similar strategy to um, make their tools and to pass along these uh, tool-making styles from generation to generation. Yeah, so we, we just had... Uh, this, it's a paper they've been working on for a good three years or so now, but um, we were really curious, I mean, given how birds learn songs, uh, we were really curious as to whether the same kind of mechanism could be explaining um, what looks like culture the New Caledonian crows. It's really quite amazing that you see these different tool designs uh, across the island of New Caledonia, and it looks like they've increased in complexity, so there's a suggestion that the crows have kind of like built from one generation to the next in, t- in terms of the, the designs of their tools. Over how long? Oh. Uh, we don't know. Like, I mean, like, so like, um, we know that the traditions are, st- are stable over the, like, the last kind of 20 or so years since they were first discovered, mm-hmm. um, so there's definitely some stability there, but what you see that is really interesting is some very simple designs at the, the southern tip of the island, and then you see a kind of intermediary form that's a little bit more complicated that goes a bit further north, and then there's this one uh, kind of multi-step tool that's a lot more complicated that goes right up the island. Uh, and the idea here is that what happened is the crows kind of like incrementally increased the complexity of their tools as they formed this culture, and then that allowed them then to kind of go into these harder-to-live-in environments with these more sophisticated tools. Alex, can I just jump in here for a second? Because um, one of the really interesting things about these tools that he's talking about, they're not the hook tools, the stick hook tools. They're made from pandanus leaves, and the birds actually cut the um, shape of the tool out of the pandanus leaf. And they do make it, it's a very complicated process, and they make, they're very methodical about it. And they cut the whole shape out before they remove it from the leaf. And so this was the idea, I think, of the, that they had some kind of model in their heads before they actually crafted the tool. Yeah, absolutely. So in order for this kind of you know, pattern to be a kind of culture and to have improved, the kind of key thing is you need a mechanism. You need some way for the crows to be able to pass on 
these uh, tool designs from Ofcom. What do they look like before we... Are, are these like the steak knives? Are these yes. are the steak knives. Yeah, this was your analogy. They're yeah, step right. tools. They look a little... Um, Oh, they're, they're a little like a saw, yeah. but they have different levels. And, I mean, they, they, they're incredibly complex. And the pandanus leaves have little barbs on the edges of them. And the, the, um, the, the crows use the, the barbs to, to latch onto these grubs to stick the, the tool in. So it's wide at the base, narrows in to get into the hole, and then has these little sticky barbs on it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like a kind of step kind of mm-hmm. design that they cut into the leaves. Um, and so what we wanted to try to figure out was... Okay, if, they, if the crows don't have language and they don't appear to, if they don't teach their young, and we have no evidence for that, and also if they don't kind of copy each other's actions, how on earth have they got this culture? How are they passing ideas from one generation to the next? And this is where uh, this kind of analogy to songbird learning coming in, this idea that the crows could form a kind of mental template uh, of their parents' tools, and then they could kind of reverse engineer their tools from that. They could then go to a pandana sleeve and keep on trying to make something that looked like this mental template in their heads. Uh, and this is what we've just found um, some, some evidence for. We actually created an artificial situation where the crows had to put pieces of card uh, into a food dispenser, and the pieces of card either were um, large rectangles or they were small rectangles. And what we did was train the crows on what kind of tool worked. Be it a, um, for some crows, that was a large rectangle first. Others, it was the small rectangle. And then just give them a sheet of card and look to see with no other cues around them, if they could actually hold that image in their head of the, the, the size and the shape of the tool that they needed to make, and then go and rip that shape into the piece of card. And these are what our results are showing. When we train them up that a big piece of card uh, is needed for the dispenser, then they rip that piece of card into a big square. When they're told that a, a, small, piece of, uh, a small square is needed, then they do the same thing. They go and they rip that piece of card into a small square. It's like a vending machine that only takes nickels yeah. or quarters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something like um, songbird learning uh, is being used by the crows in order to kind of create this culture in their population and then from that culture to actually slowly increase the complexity of their tools. And one of the things that, that I was um, fascinated to learn is that uh, New Caledonian crows have, um, the juveniles have a very long childhood. They have a long juvenile period when they're um, hopping along next to their parents, learning how, or watching, I guess, how to make tools. And um, there aren't ground predators on the island, so they can do this, you know, without fear of being eaten. Um, and they, they, um, so they, they, you know, they noodle around for a long time before they actually get good at making the tool. And I guess that the idea would be that this, uh, uh, they're just watching their parent make good tools, making some terrible tools themselves, yeah. <laughs> and then eventually, um, um, you know, forming this template of. Yeah. So one of the things we really noticed that led us to this hypothesis is that the parents are really tolerant of the juveniles coming in and, and using their tools. So the parent can literally be holding its tool and it's just about to get the meat and then the juvenile will come rushing in, grab the tool, the meat drops back in the hole and then it now starts playing around with the tool as well. And the parents are happy with that. So what's happening there is the juveniles are getting huge amounts of experience of what their parents' tools look and feel like. And that's where we think they're forming this mental template over all these instances of, of stealing mum and dad's tools. And that then allows them later on to kind of, you know, build their own t- uh, tool to that same template. Alex, um, are crows going to be running the world in a million years? <laughs> it would be pretty cool if they did, right? I mean, that would be pretty exciting. They'll be using ATFs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've seen the clip. Of the, yeah, there's a lovely clip online if you haven't seen it of a crow for some, some, for some reason trying to uh, 
put money into an ATM. I have no, in Japan, I have no idea what's going on. But um, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's so interesting um, that, you know, the more we look into their minds, the more it seems that there's a lot going on there and that if evolution put the right pressure on those minds, it seems hard to see, you know, why not, you know, if they were pushed in that direction. But I think one of the things that sometimes we take for granted is, like, how much, like, our, our ecology, like, has pushed us towards technology. And I talked about those stone tools earlier and how hitting one rock into another kind of initiated all technology in humans. And that's because we started off with stones that we could bash into each other. And you can really do a lot of different types of stone bashing and you can make more and more fine blades and there's lots of things that you can go with. But when it comes to, you know, making tools out of sticks, making tools out of leaves, there's not that many levels of technology that you can take your tools to. So I do wonder if there's a bit of a cap there because there just isn't anywhere for these crows to, to go. Maybe we just haven't thought tools. of it. Well, maybe they haven't thought of it as well as the right, problem. I but, but, but then I think there has to be for evolution, there has to be some kind of selective pressure where you can continually make better and better tools that are helpful in your environment. Otherwise, you just won't develop a technology that's really sophisticated. Are there dumbos of the bird world? Yes, but it all depends on, how, on what your measurement is. Um, so in the um, research for the genius of birds, I spoke with a scientist who invented one of the, the scales of intelligence for birds, and it was based on um, a bird's ability to innovate in the wild. And um, this was Louis Lefebvre, who works at uh, McGill University, and he basically looked through um, 75 years' worth of, of ornithological journals looking for um, reports of, of innovative, unusual, um, novel behavior in birds. And then he took all of these. He found 2,300 of them. He took them all. And, Will you um, give us a few? Because the, the anecdotes are incredible. Yeah, so some of the um, uh, uh, really clever behavior um, was, uh, I think one of my favorites is, uh, was an eagle in, uh, eagles, a group of eagles in north, northern Arizona. And they found a cache of dead minnows under, frozen under the surface of a lake. And they, so they chipped holes in the ice and then they jumped up and down on the surface of the lake, and it forced the dead minnows up through the holes, and then they feasted. Um, and there, you know, there, there's so many examples. There is the, the, uh, the house sparrows in New Zealand who learned how to open and close the door, open the doors of a, of a cafeteria by hovering in front of the sensor, or, or sort of by, by leaning, sitting on it, then leaning over until their heads triggered the sensor and open the cafeteria doors, and they'd go in and feed on the crumbs and stuff. And the observers who were watching this saw the birds do it, I think, 45 times, uh, 16 times in 45 minutes. So they were having a lot of, uh, of fun with this. So Louis collected all these anecdotes, and then he sorted them by bird family, and he came up with a scale of bird intelligence. So what were the birds at the top? No surprise, corvids, um, parrots, birds of prey, um, herons, gulls, uh, and also some, some small birds, uh, finches, house sparrows. At the bottom, turkeys, quails, and the emu, the national bird of Australia, <laughs> which caused a bit of a stir in Sydney when it was announced the next day. But... Uh, yeah, so, so, but that's one measurement. And, you know, it's very possible that, that turkeys and quails and, and uh, emus and, and other birds that look dim 
in this regard have other sorts of intelligence. Well, this is the interesting thing about trying to talk about bird intelligence, right? Because it's tricky to parse. Like, if birds gave us an IQ test about navigation... We'd fail. We would fail. No, it's really true. And I think it's one of the things that, that I like to emphasize is that some of the things that we've been talking about, the problem-solving, tool-making, those are all um, things that we humans do pretty well ourselves. But birds really have um, abilities that go way beyond ours, and I think navigation is, is a great example of that. Um, scientists think that birds navigate with a kind of map and compass system, um, and it's really the natural equivalent of our GPS, our compasses, our maps, and they use a whole variety of cues. Um, they integrate uh, cues from sun and stars, magnetic fields, landmarks, uh, wind, sound, even smell. And they funnel all of this information into their brains and then use it to guide them to their destination. And I think one of my favorite stories about this is, uh, involves white-crowned sparrows, which um, are common around here. But this was a flock that uh, lives on the west coast, and they were migrating from their um, breeding grounds in Canada to their wintering grounds in Mexico. And scientists in Seattle caught uh, 30 of the birds that were making this journey. They took uh, 15 adults and 15 juveniles. And they packed them into a crate and put them in a small aircraft and then flew them 2,300 miles across the country to a release site in Princeton, New Jersey to see what happened. Well, within hours of releasing those birds, the adults were beelining back to their, directly to their wintering, the route to their wintering grounds in, um, in Mexico. And even the juvenile birds that had only made that migratory journey once in their lives were also, had reoriented and were heading across the country solo toward their, um, their breeding grounds in, in Mexico. So it's really uh, an, an astonishing ability, and we don't yet know uh, very much about the mental map of birds. We, um, we don't know its coordinates or whether it even has coordinates, but the, um, the maps, mental maps of some birds at least seem to be very large indeed, encompassing whole continents or even the globe. Is it based on experience? I mean... Yes, some of it... Uh, okay, so the, the, the very youngest birds that they took um, had uh, not made the journey before. Those birds, released in Princeton, New Jersey, flew south to Florida. So they, there is an inborn um, uh, compass that directs them south for a certain number of days. But once they've made that journey once, the learning curve is very steep. And it's, it's just quite amazing they're integrating all this information to sort out the, the proper route. The Aspen Ideas Festival only happens once a year, but the ideas on aspenideas.org are available all the time. This spring, we introduced a brand new website that serves up the captivating conversations and remarkable speakers that define the festival. Explore a diverse range of topics and immerse yourself in conversations that inspire you to think deeper. On aspenideas.org, you'll discover ideas you didn't even know you were looking for. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Flora Lichtman. What about 
artists? Are there artists in the bird world? Yeah, this is <laughs> one of my favorite topics. So, yes, I think there are. Um, there are birds called bowerbirds in, uh, that live in Australia and New, um, New Guinea, and they have what seems to be a, quite an astonishing aesthetic sense. So a male bowerbird woos a female by building a beautiful bower. And this consists usually of a little archway made, very symmetrical, made of sticks, and then a platform that's decorated with objects. And, um, that's better. So I want to emphasize here, this is not a nest. There's no rearing of young that takes place here. It's, it's purely a stage for seduction. <laughs> so it's really the platform that the male uses to, um, to woo the female. And females are very picky. They really like um, arches that are perfectly symmetrical and made of hundreds of sticks, all of the same length, and built into this. Um, this is also an example of, of template matching. The birds go back and forth, mm. putting the sticks in to make sure that it's symmetrical. Um, and, then, um, and then the males decorate their, um, their bowers with, uh, with objects. And, so the female um, comes into the bower. She sits in this little archway, and she observes the male's performance. Now, when he, she stations herself there, he erupts into this kind of frenetic ballet of hops and skips and jumps, and, and he uh, flashes his wings, and he bulges his eyes, and then he, he, he'll launch into this, um, this stream of calls, um, including lots of mimicry. They're very good mimics, so they'll do the... Um, the kind of crazy laughing call of a kookaburra or the, um, the screeching call of a sulfur-crested cockatoo, and um, making a real show of it. And meanwhile, the female, she's sitting in her little archway, judging all this with a, a highly critical eye. So she's gauging his performance based on the performance of other males that she's seen, which is a cognitive skill in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And only the males that put on the best show and have the best um, display of objects will actually win a mating. And the different species of, um, of bowerbirds have favorite um, co- colored objects. So satin bowerbirds love blue. Great bowerbirds like white. They pick up um, bones and stones and, and arrange them. And spotted bowerbirds like shiny things. Um, so they usually locate their bowers near Australian um, dumps. They're called tips in Australia, where they can find all kinds of you know, like shiny, glinting stuff. And in fact, one um, spotted bowerbird built its bower near the studio of a stained glass artist. And it picked up the little shards of glass and arranged them by color. So it had this kind of beautiful mosaic um, in the end. And the, the, the Vogelkop bowerbirds of New Guinea do the same thing with berries and flowers. They organize them by color. And they are just extraordinarily beautiful. And I think they're works of art in the sense that they're, they're create, creations designed to have an impact on another being. And to me, that's a, that's a pretty good definition of art. Alex, before we leave, I want to make sure we leave with take-home things to look for in, in our daily life, and most of us don't live in New Caledonia. So is there a chance that a crow I would see around here might be using a tool? Like, should I be watching them closely? So I don't think it's going to be 
as far as we know, it's going to be really rare, if not never, that you're going to see like an American <laughs> okay. crow using a tool in the wild. But I think one of the things that um, I find really striking is that every time we kind of run these very complicated tests uh, with the New Caledonian crows, other researchers will run them with non-tool using uh, crows, so like brooks or ravens. Um, and generally, once you teach non-tool using crows to use tools, we'll see um, simple meta-tool use. We'll see a lot of the same performances that we see in New Caledonian crows. Mm. So um, it looks like it's, it's far more like the education of a, of a mind that's important towards tools as opposed to that there's a difference in the minds themselves. So to me, that means that you know, if, you're, if you're wandering around and you're seeing a, an American crow just you know, rustling in the bushes and doing, going about its business, there's no reason to suppose right now that it, it's not got that same level of like, uh, braininess, of cognitive complexity as uh, the New Caledonian crow. In fact, that seems a lot more likely, actually, than that there's something very special just about New Caledonian crows. So I think for me, anyway, that, you know, it gives me a, like a newfound appreciation just of birds, birds in general, and particularly corvids. It's not just this one species that I work with in New Caledonia, but that it just seems much more likely that every corvid has got a lot going on uh, that we're maybe not giving it credit for right now. And Jennifer, any birds that I should look for? Well, one of my favorites in this area is the black-capped chickadee, which has one of the most sophisticated and complex communication systems of any land animal. So um, chickadees are, uh, you know, they communicate in the way that other birds do um, to draw mates and to um, locate flock members and food sources. But the really um, remarkable language-like calls that they use are to warn of predators um, and they, these warning calls indicate not only where a predator, what kind of predator it is, whether it's coming from the air or from the land, but also the magnitude of threat that that predator represents. So, for example, a um, seat, high seat call that a chickadee makes, that suggests that there's a, a, a predator on the wing, like a shrike or a sharp-shinned hawk. Can you make the call? Um, it's really a seat. And the signature chickadee-dee-dee -dee call that we associate with the bird, that indicates a perched predator like an owl on a limb above. Um, and the number of Ds at the end of the call indicates the magnitude of the threat. So more Ds means a more dangerous predator. So I tell people, the next time that you pass a chickadee, Note the number of Ds at the end of its call, because you, you might have thought it was just kind of chirping away mindlessly, and it's actually tweeting intelligence to other birds. Does this, has writing this book made you rethink what intelligence is? Mm, absolutely. I mean, and how difficult it is to measure, um, both in ourselves and, and in other species. And also, I, I, um, I do hope that when people read my book that they'll come away with... Um, a really new perspective on birds, but also a new understanding of intelligence and what it might be and how there might be ways of knowing in the natural world that, that are beyond our own. I think that is a perfect place to transition to audience questions. Uh, how about we'll start with you on the right? My name's Nicole. I have two questions. Let's one. do one. There's a lot of people here. <laughs> um, okay, is facial recognition in crows... Uh, an example of template matching? Um, and could you talk about yeah, that a little bit? That is, that is a great question. I would, I would say it's probably, it could be underpinned by simpler mechanisms. So essentially it's just kind of pattern recognition there where, you know, the, the crows are queuing into a face because it's not the case that they're then having to kind of create uh, a, a new behavior based on that memory in any way. You know, it's just that they learn, okay, 
uh, with the studies that have been done on this, you know, a, a face mask of Richard Nixon is one that I should, you know, uh, avoid. It's scary. So I think it's more just, it can be a, a more basic memory than uh, kind of using template matching. Let's go over here. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, to, to each of you, what are your beliefs about uh, the consciousness of birds? Do you want to go first or should I? <laughs> well, I think it depends on how you define consciousness. But I would argue that, um, that the, the birds absolutely have um, a, a form of consciousness. Alex and I were talking about um, emotions in birds earlier. And, um, and it, it's, we're really just at the beginning of understanding what's going on in the mind of a bird. But I, I don't see that there's any reason to assume that there wouldn't be consciousness in there, especially now that we're learning these um, these the incredibly complicated social interactions that birds have. Um, they, you know, they have the ability to take the perspective of another bird. Um, and those are, those are elements of consciousness in my mind. And so I would say yes. So, I mean, I, am, I love mysteries, and I think that's probably, like, you know, probably one of the very deepest mysteries uh, that you know, we have around us is you know, how animals are thinking. Um, I do, so, yeah, one of the areas that I want to move into more is looking at the emotion of birds, and I think that is a, a way where you can start, you know, trying to, very carefully anyway, start and trying to step towards that and ask questions empirically about if there are similarities in emotions and how, how deep those similarities go. So um, I honestly don't know, but I'm really looking forward to spending the rest of my career trying to find some kind of answer to that. <laughs> Let's go in the back. During migration, uh, when they... When they uh, 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 established their formation, the birds on the outer perimeter are supposed to be the strongest birds. I think I'm, I, I've, I've been told that. W what establishes that? Instinct, evolution, how do they know well, how to organize? It, it does depend on the species. Um, I was very interested to, to learn that ibises actually take turns leading their Vs. So... Um, there's a which is turn taking is a, is a big thing in animal behavior and and it it suggests some possibly some kinds of of altruism or um, and uh, so it does depend on the species the, the kinds of formations that they have. Let's go back over here. How about the front row? Alex, could you say a little bit about the Kia bird and their passion for rubber and other things? Yeah, um, yeah, the Kia are awesome. Uh, we were just talking uh, earlier about them and. Um, uh, you know, there's this question of, well, you know, you're starting to work with Kia, are they smarter than the crows, what's going on there? And um, uh, the Kias seemed really switched on, and they seem very different from the crows. They seem, they're so playful, they're so social. Uh, um, you know, they have this call that um, appears to be maybe analogous to laughter, so if you play back their warble call, they'll start playing with each other. And what does playing look like? So they... Um, so they will like they'll do rough and tumble, and then they'll also just like um, do aerial acrobatics. And then even if they're on their own, if, if you find a single kia sitting around and you play this warble call, um, the kia will start throwing stones in the air or doing aerial acrobatics on its own. So it looks a lot like this kind of, you know, a call that leads to like this positive emotional state. It looks something like laughter and. Uh, this is one of the areas that we're really interested in working on the next few years. Um, so again, we're with the Kia, we're going to go more on the emotional side, the social side. Um, and I, I'm really excited. I think they're one of the most amazing birds I've ever I've, you know, had the privilege of meeting. I'll just chime in on the rubber question because um, I, I was recently in a, at the Kia lab in, in um, uh, Austria. 
and went into the aviary with the Kias. And I was told to remove everything, you know, rings, watch, hair barrettes. Um, but I didn't take my sneakers off, and they, the, the Kias just dove into to my laces and just completely tore them apart. They're, they're, they, they love anything new, and, and it's like they look at an object and they say, oh, what can I do with this, you know? And that's, that's kind of, I think, the, this level of curiosity that leads them to, um, you know, strip the rubber around people's windshields and, and uh, you know, deflate automobile tires and that kind of thing. We have time for one more question. Um, I understand birds are um, ancestors of dinosaurs and that they've survived that long. Or is this right Other or way wrong? around, yeah. No, sorry, yeah, right. The descendants of the dinosaurs. So they've survived longer than... What does that have to do with the, uh, with the, the intelligence of these animals? Um, well, I mean, I think it's one of the reasons that I work with them. I think it's absolutely amazing that we have these feathered dinosaurs just flying around mm-hmm. us um, who have, you know... They clearly have evolved some, you know, some way of surviving for like millions of years, obviously in different species and different thought patterns. So um, uh, it's one of the things that really captures my fascination. And I think the other thing that it does is it allows us to try to understand whether intelligence generally evolves in predictable ways. So, you know, mammals and, and birds uh, are very distantly related in terms of evolution. So there's about uh, 315 million years between us. So if we see the same thought patterns in flying, di- in, you know, flying dinosaurs as in, in ourselves in mammals, then it tells us something really fundamental about you know, how intelligence evolves, about our own intelligence and that that we're going to see on our planet. So mm-hmm. it ties in really nice with this whole story. It gives a whole other kind of scientific angle and evolutionary angle to everything that we're doing here. Is it's, it's really going to like, you know, the most fundamental questions about what intelligence is and how it arises. That's all we have time for. Thank you, guys. Great. Jennifer Ackerman is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Genius of Birds. Alexander Taylor is an animal psychologist and leads the New Caledonian Crow Lab at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Flora Lichtman is host and managing editor of Every Little Thing, a podcast from Gimlet Media. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our new website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Malgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.